this morning. Take a Bible, find Mark chapter 7, and take your notes out if you'd like to track along with what we're going to talk about. On Sunday mornings, we're actually in the midst of a really long, slow walk through the Gospel of John. Uh, We're going to pick that study back up in the month of October, right where we left off. We'll pick up with John chapter 13 in a couple of weeks. Over the summer months, we hit pause on the Gospel of John so that we could walk through the short book of 1 John. And those types of studies are what we normally do on Sunday mornings. We typically pick a a book of the Bible and we just start in the beginning and we work our way to the end and we try to talk about and make sense of everything that we come across in that particular book. This morning and for the next seven or a total of seven Sundays, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk about the seven deadly sins. And rather than each Sunday pick a singular passage and try to work our way through that passage, my aim in this study, in this series, is to present you with a a completely biblical, or might say a fully biblical view of what the scriptures have to say about each of these seven deadly sins. It's important for us to talk about sin, and I just want to start sort of explaining to you why this matters. I want to share with you a quote from John Calvin. He wrote a well-known, famous book called Institutes of the Christian Religion, page one, paragraph one, line one. The very beginning of that book, he says this, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And Calvin would say the opposite is also true. If we want to know who we are, we've got to understand who God is. But his point here is if we really want to understand who God is, we also have to know who we are and who we're not. So we need to understand who we are as people created in God's image, and we need to understand who we are as sinners. And let's be honest nobody today really likes to talk about sin. Saying the word sin in public discourse is received about like yelling the word bomb on an airplane. People don't like it. It makes people uncomfortable. It's probably going to get you in some degree of trouble. And so we don't do that. To use a more timely analogy, saying the word sin in public is kind of like sneezing in the grocery store. When you're walking down the produce aisle and you feel that sneeze coming, you do everything you can to hold it in because you know if I just turn loose of a big hachu, people are going to give me nasty looks. Somebody's going to ask me if I need a COVID test. Somebody's going to give me another mask. You know that's not going to be received well. That's how it's like in 2020 even talking about sin. Rather than the word sin, we like words like this. Goof, blunder, mistake, foible, addiction, weakness, shortcoming. We have a lot of euphemisms for sin so that we don't even have to use the word sin. But Calvin is right. If we really want to know who God is, we really need to know who we are We need to know who we are as people created in God's image, but we also need to have a biblical understanding of sin. So we're going to talk about sin in this series. That still leaves the question out there, why the seven deadly sins? Why this grouping of sins? I'll just be honest with you on the front end of this study. 
There is no Bible verse that says, here are the seven deadly sins. You will not come across a verse in the Bible that says, here they are, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, in a group. You will find all of these sins in the Bible, but you will not find them as a group within the Bible. To find them as a group, you actually have to go back in church history, and you have to go back all the way to the 4th, 5th century to a monk named Evagrius of Pontus. Evagrius of Pontus. He had a nickname, and his nickname was Evagrius the Solitary, or in our lingo, that would be Evagrius the Loner. He got that nickname because he looked around at society and culture, and all he saw was sin and ugliness and darkness and dysfunction. And Evagrius said, I want to get away from all of that. And so he went out into the wilderness to escape the sin and the corruption of the world. I bet over the last six months you've had that thought at some point. I just want to get away. I want to get away from all the mess, all the nonsense, all the ugliness, all the hate, all the trouble, and I just want a cabin in the woods somewhere. I just want a little shack on the beach somewhere, and I want to get away from all this nonsense. Do you know what Evagrius found when he actually did that? When he left the sin and the corruption of the world and he went to be all by himself in the wilderness, he realized that he took himself with him. And that means sin and corruption came with him. And all by himself out in the desert, he started thinking about sin. Not just the things we do or don't do that are bad, but sin as the condition of our heart. And he started to talk about, originally they weren't called deadly sins, they were called capital sins or chief sins. Again, not so much you did this wrong or you didn't do something you should have done, but there is a disposition within your heart that is not right. It's less, these sins, they're less about what we do or don't do and more about who we are as people. And that's certainly true when it comes to the sin of greed. And that's where we're going to start this morning. Let me give you a definition of greed. Sometimes in older books, Greed is referred to as avarice. In the Bible, sometimes greed is referred to as covetousness. Here's a definition. Greed is the inordinate desire for money or for the things that can be bought with money. Generosity is the virtue that corresponds with this vice. And we'll come full circle to talk about giving and generosity by the time we finish this morning. But greed is a condition of your heart. It is an inordinate desire for money. Money itself is not the problem, you understand. The problem is us, it's our hearts, and this inordered desire to have money or to have the things that money can buy. The word greed is an Anglo-Saxon word. And originally, it described somebody who was literally starving to death and then got a plate of food and just started shoving it in their face. That's the original root meaning of the word. And when it comes to greed, we've replaced food with money. And we're just trying to shovel in more and more and more and more to satisfy this desire we have for money or for the things that money can buy. Maybe you think about characters in a book or in a movie who display greed. Maybe you think about Dickens, A Christmas Carol, and you think about Ebenezer Scrooge, 
Somebody who was just wrapped up in money, wanted more money, more money, didn't want to spend any money, wanted to hang on to money. Maybe you think about the movie Wall Street and Gordon Gecko, who famously just accepted greed and said greed isn't bad, greed is good. Maybe you don't think about books and movies, maybe you think about the Bible. Greedy people in the Bible. Maybe you think about Achan, the book of Joshua. The people won a a battle at Jericho. They went in, they were supposed to destroy everything that was there, but Achan saw some stuff, some gold, some silver, some clothing. He really wanted it. He was greedy for it. He took it, and it literally cost him his life. Maybe you think about the book of Acts, the New Testament story of Ananias and Sapphira. People in their church were selling property and bringing the offering to church to meet the needs of people in their congregation. They did that. They wanted everyone to think that they were bringing all of the money they got from their land, but they secretly kept some of it back. And in their greed, they literally lost their lives. Maybe you think about Zacchaeus. This is a hopeful story about greed. Zacchaeus was a greedy man who cheated, who lied, who stole, who took advantage of people. He met Jesus and he was saved from this sin. He was transformed into a generous man. But maybe you think of Judas, somebody who was so greedy that he had the audacity to steal from Jesus and ultimately lost his soul betraying Jesus for a relatively small amount of money just because he was greedy. Maybe your mind goes to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17, God through Moses gives a warning to the future kings of Israel, and the warning, at least in part, is don't be greedy and pile up too much gold. Specifically a warning for the kings. Maybe your mind goes to the New Testament, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. There's a list in both of those passages of what an elder, a pastor, a shepherd ought to be like. And one of the things on that list is he must not be greedy for gain. He must not be a lover of money. It's like in these passages that there's a realization that if your leadership is greedy, that's going to filter down either to the nation or to a congregation. It's like there's an acknowledgement that those who are in positions of leadership and power and authority are particularly particularly susceptible to the sin of greed. If you're going to get the most out of this study, this series, my encouragement to you is not just to show up on Sunday morning, but it's to go back and to think through and read through all of these verses I'm going to throw at you. I'm going to throw a ton of verses your way. Go back and read them. Go back and think through them. Pray through them. Ask God to give you wisdom. See if the examples I'm giving you line up with the scriptures. Greed. Truth be told, we're all susceptible to it. Not just kings, not just pastors, not just leaders, people in positions of authority. It's a very common problem. And I think it helps to be honest about why it's so common. So let's answer this question. Why is greed such a common problem today? The first reason, really the most important reason, is that our hearts are sinful. Our hearts are bent towards sin. This is Mark chapter 7. This is what Jesus says about things that come from our heart. Look with me at Mark 7 verse 20 to 23. Jesus said, 
What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. That's what we're talking about this morning. Coveting, avarice, greed, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is the natural bent of our heart according to Jesus. The problem is not really out there. The problem is in here. This is naturally who we are. These things naturally come from within us. If you don't believe me, in about three weeks when we open the nursery again on Sunday morning, let's take a walk down the hall. Let's go to the two-year-old class. My guess is those two-year-olds have never had to be trained to be selfish and greedy. And yet you walk in that that classroom, they will be grabbing toys, they will be clenching their jaw, and they will look at the sweet little two-year-old that you dropped off in the same room and they will say, that's mine. It's mine. You and I are way more sophisticated than that. We haven't really moved beyond it, but we at least cover it up. We learn to mask our greed. We learn to hide our greed. We are very quick and very skilled at pointing out greed in other people. We're very good at looking at other people and saying, that's a greedy, greedy person. Look at that. Ugh. We look at ourselves and we excuse it very, very easily. David Mathis is right. He says this, we may not formally baptize unrestrained greed. That would be Gordon Gecko just saying greed is good. We may not go that far, but we've winked at it a thousand times. We've swallowed our reservations in the weed. That's the weed of greed, of avarice. It happily grows to fill every inch we give it. Why is it such a common problem? It's because our hearts are sinful. That's what Jesus says. Here's a second reason. Our culture is hopelessly consumeristic. We are consumers. We are constantly, constantly, constantly bombarded with advertisements. You cannot escape it. You understand those advertisements are not designed to inform you about anything. Those advertisements are designed to form you as a consumer, not to inform you, but to form you and to shape you. I like the way William Willimon says it. He says, I don't usually know what I want until advertising tells me what I'm required to have if I am to live well in this world. That's true, isn't it? Some of you, I'm not going to point fingers or call names, but some of you are old enough to remember the Sears and Roebuck catalog. And you remember that catalog coming in the mail And you would open it up and you would flip through the pages and you would look at those pictures and you would say, I didn't know I needed so many things. Look at, it's just page after page of stuff that I need. I need one of all of them. And that's kind of old and dusty now and a catalog in the mail. We replaced the catalog with shopping malls, but already that's kind of old and dusty and we're replacing shopping malls with online retailers like Amazon and they know what you need, don't they? 
right? You just have a conversation about something out loud and Amazon's listening. And as soon as you log on, they say, look, we have a sale. Maybe you'd like to buy one or two or 10. That's the goal in advertising. It's not to inform us, it's to form us. We are consumers. One last thought here. Why is it such a common problem? I think in part it's because our lives are largely lived on social media. And I understand this is a a different experience for all of us. Some of you may not use social media a lot. Some of you may be on social media all the time. I just want to acknowledge in this series that social media itself is like a can of gas being poured on the seven deadly sins. That's true with greed. Social media gives you and I a platform to boast and to brag about stuff. And some people use it for that. Some people are sanctified enough that they at least put a hashtag with blessed at the end. But really what we're doing is boasting and bragging about things. And when we're not boasting and bragging with our platform, we use social media as a window to look into the lives of other people. And they all look so happy on social media, and we look at the things that they have, the stuff that we have, and inevitably you come away from a a session on social media and you think, you know, if I had those things, I'd probably be as happy as those people looked. It's like gasoline on a fire. It's a common problem. I want you to understand, biblically speaking, it's a deadly problem. We'll talk more about this moniker, the deadly sins, in weeks to come. I just want you to understand this really is a deadly problem. And I want to set before you a few biblical thoughts. Why is this a deadly sin? Number one, greed destroys our capacity to have faith in God and faith in his promises. It destroys your capacity to trust God and to trust his word. Think about Matthew 6. Jesus could not be more clear in Matthew 6. He says, you can serve God or you can serve money, but make no mistake about it, you can't serve both. It's impossible. You will love one and hate the other or you'll hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot trust in money and also trust in the promises of God at the same time. It's not possible. You cannot have faith in God and the promises he makes to his people and put your faith in money at the same time. You must pick one. You can't hang on to both. Greed destroys our capacity to have faith in God and his promises. Secondly, greed turns our focus from eternity, where it ought to be, to this world, which is a world that's passing away. Turns our focus from eternity to a world that's passing away. Money's a funny thing. It gives us the strong illusion of self-sufficiency and security and safety. It makes us feel like we can lean back and take a breath. That's what money does. I want you to understand, that's an illusion. And it's turning your focus from eternity to this world. It makes me think of the farmer in Luke 12. He has a bumper crop and another bumper crop and another bumper crop, and he has no place to store his crops. So he builds bigger barns. You and I need to understand there's nothing wrong with barns or bigger barns. Sometimes you need to build a bigger barn. 
The problem is that when this man built his bigger barns, he sat down and he kicked his feet up and he said, soul, now you can rest. Now you're safe. Now you're self-sufficient. Now you're secure. God said to that man, you're a fool. Because tonight you die and you pass from this world into eternity. And all of your focus has been on this world, which is a world that is coming to an end. It's a world that's passing away. Rather than on eternity, where it should have been all along. Why is it a deadly sin? Number three, it's the root of all kinds of sinful and wicked behavior. And one of the things I want to point out in this series is what the Bible does and doesn't say about these sins. And so listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He does not, does not, does not say money is the root of all evil. It's not what he says. That's how it often gets thrown around at times. Oh, the Bible, Christians, they believe money is the cause of all the problems in the world. No, 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 no. Paul says, the love of money, the inordinate desire for money, the worship of money is a root and it will grow up in your life and it will cause all kinds of other sinful behavior and wicked behavior. If you want an example of what this sort of looks like in quasi real life, think about C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Edmund. In this book, in this movie, Edmund meets the white witch, and she's bad. She's rotten, and she's trying to corrupt Edmund, and she gives him Turkish delight, and it's his favorite. He loves the Turkish delight. He wants more Turkish delight. All he can think about is Turkish delight, and he ends up doing some really, really rotten things because of that one desire for Turkish delight. It's a root that grows up into all kinds of sin and all kinds of wickedness. Paul says that's what greed is like. When your heart is chasing money, that root will grow up in your heart and it will bear fruit and the fruit will be bad. All sorts of sin, all sorts of wickedness. Things that you never thought you would do. Things that you didn't think you were capable of doing because you allowed this root to grow up in your heart. One more reason. Why is it such a deadly sin? Greed fixes our gaze on ourselves instead of our neighbor. You can go back and look at Matthew 22. Jesus is asked, what is the great commandment? Boil it down to one, Jesus. And Jesus refuses to play by those categories, so he says, I'll give you two. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Secondly, is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Greed prevents you from doing either of those things. It's essentially selfishness. It's a turning in on yourself. You can't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength if you love money. And you can't love your neighbor if you're focused on yourself and your money and your stuff. It's impossible. It prevents you from obeying these great commands as Jesus laid them out. So what do we do with it? My suggestion to you this week and each week in this series is that we fight these sins. We don't just sit back and let them ruin us and destroy us, but that we actually try to do something about it and we fight it. So when it comes to greed, how do we fight 
this sin. Number one, we recognize greed as sin. That's got to be the starting point. Recognize it as sin. Don't wink at it. Don't laugh at it. Don't point to others' greed and talk about how bad it is in comparison to yourself. Don't try to sweep it under some spiritual rug. Just agree with God about it. God, you think greed is sinful. If I see it in my life, I'm going to confess it is sin. The book of Exodus, chapter 20, God gives his people the 10 commands, the top 10, right there at the end, number 10, don't covet. You say, does that really belong in the top 10? Does that really belong in a list with murder and idol worship? Does that really belong in a list with adultery and stealing? I mean, that stuff is bad stuff. And then he just tacks coveting on. That's what God thinks about it. The question is, is that what we think about it? Is it sin? You might think about 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists a whole bunch of stuff. And he says, these things left in your life without repentance and without faith in Jesus, these things keep you out of the kingdom. Right in the middle of that list, and it's a bad list of stuff, is greed. You might think about Colossians chapter 3. Paul says in Colossians 3 that greed is idolatry. That's a direct quote. Greed is idolatry. You may never lower yourself to the point where you worship a carved stone statue. But if you're a greedy person, you are an idolater. You are worshiping money. Number one, we recognize it as sin. Number two, we recognize the folly of greed. It is sinful. It's offensive to God. It's rebellion against God. But it's also just foolishness. Trying to fill your heart with money and stuff is a fool's errand. You're no different than a man standing on the side of the Grand Canyon trying to fill it up one drop at a time with a medicine squeezer or medicine dropper. If you went to the Grand Canyon and you saw someone dropping in one drop at a time and you said, what are you doing? I'm filling up the Grand Canyon. You would say, you are a fool. That's what the greedy person is. He's a fool. Look at Ecclesiastes 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. If you look to money to be satisfied, it's never going to happen. The one who loves his wealth, not going to be satisfied with his income. It's a vanity. It's emptiness. It is meaningless. To use a phrase from Ecclesiastes, it's like chasing the wind. You're never, never, never going to catch it. It's foolish. Maybe you heard the news out of Death Valley this week. Temperatures reached 130 degrees. It's been hot in Odessa this summer. I don't think we've made it all the way up to 130 yet. 130. Some scientists said that uh, this last week was the hottest recorded temperatures anywhere on earth at any time. I don't know if that's right or that's wrong, but 130 degrees is hot. It made me think of a story I heard one time about Death Valley. There was a group of tourists. Uh, they were checking out the sites. They accidentally came upon a skeleton, somebody who had died in Death Valley. All that was left was bones. And in each bony hand, there was an object. In one bony hand, there was a rock, a gold nugget. In the other bony hand was a note, and the group took it out when they found it, and they read it. And you know what the note said? 
died rich. Died rich. They took the gold nugget to somebody who knows about those things and it turned out to be fool's gold. And the entire scene is a picture of the folly of greed. Right? When you're piling up money and you're looking for security and happiness and money, you don't even have what you think you have. You're carrying around fool's gold and in the end, it kills you. You die. It's a deadly, deadly sin. It is a foolish sin. How do we fight it? Number three, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus. I talked about Evagrius. He was a Christian monk. If you were to meet a Buddhist monk, one of the things that Buddhist monk would tell you is greed is a problem. It's a big problem. Buddhists believe that. And this Buddhist monk would tell you your greed is standing in the way of you and ultimate liberation into nothingness. You say, I don't want to be liberated into nothingness, but that's the Buddhist end game, to be liberated into nothingness. And the the good Buddhist monk would tell you, your greed is standing in the way of that, and you need to stifle it. You just need to stuff it down. As Christians, we agree that greed is a problem, We don't believe the answer is just stifling it and stuffing it down. We believe the answer is finding a true treasure. It's redirecting that desire. You know, Paul told the church in Corinth that Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that you and I who are poor might become rich. Paul's not talking about bank accounts He's not talking about the money you stuff in your mattress. He's not talking about your 401k, your retirement account. He's talking about eternal riches. Jesus became poor that you and I might become rich. He explains this to the church in Philippi. He says Jesus became a servant. He humbled himself by becoming a servant. And he humbled himself as a servant to the point of death on a cross. He died on a cross for our sin. That includes our greed. Our foolish, wicked greed. He died for that sin. And he died for that sin so that we could have true treasure. Jesus describes it in Matthew 13. He says, a man found a treasure in a field. He gladly sold everything he had so that he could get that one treasure. He says, that's what it's like when you find the kingdom of God. You find a true treasure the greatest treasure that can ever be had. It's not measured in ounces or dollar signs. It's measured in eternity. It's bought with the blood of Jesus. If you and I are going to fight greed, Jesus has to be part of the equation. It's not just a matter of self-control or self-will, but it's confessing our sin, believing that Jesus died for it, and understanding that he's offering us true and lasting treasure. Number four, how do we fight greed? We pursue contentment. Contentment. This is what the Bible says about contentment. I'll give you a few verses. Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. It doesn't say get rid of all your money. It says keep your life free from the love of money, the inordinate desire for money, and be content. Look what we read in Philippians 4. Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I've learned in whatever situation to be content. 
I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He goes on to say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He's not talking about five-foot tall people dunking basketballs. I can do anything. He's saying, I can have a lot or I can have nothing. I can do it all through Christ. I can have a lot and not worship the money and love the money, or I can have nothing and I can be content. Whatever my circumstance, I trust God and I give thanks to God. If you do those two things, it's going to be awful hard for you to be wrapped up in greed. If you trust in God and his promises and you're actively giving thanks to God for what he's blessed you with, it's going to be awful hard to get lost in greed. Number five, here's a great Sunday school answer. Read the Bible. Your second grade Sunday school teacher would be proud. How do you fight greed? You read the Bible. Look what we read in Psalm 119, verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your word, God, is better to me than a big pile of money. If I had to pick one or the other, I'd pick your word. Tell that to the guy on cable news who wants you to buy gold. And just ask yourself, who do I believe? Do I believe the gold salesman? Or do I believe the psalmist? Do I believe that gold and silver will keep me safe and secure? Or do I believe that the word of God is better than treasure? If we are people who believe that, this book will do more than sit on our shelves and accompany us to church on Sunday. This book will be something we read, something we study, something we think about, something we meditate on, something we talk about, something that we memorize. Read the Bible. One last thought. How do we fight greed? We commit to tithing. Commit to tithing. We could say a lot here. Let me just say a few things. In a few weeks, we'll talk about sloth. And one of the things we'll see is that the Sabbath principle is part of God's action plan for fighting our sloth. This morning, what I'm saying to you is that the tithing principle is part of God's action plan for fighting our greed. And I want to be very, very clear. God does not need your money. None of it. He doesn't need my money. Psalm 50 says, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And the West Texas paraphrase is that he owns the oil reserves in a thousand wells. He's got plenty of money. He's not short on resources. He does not need your money. And yet, the prophet Malachi speaks to God's people and basically double-dog dares them to bring their tithe. Do it and see what happens, he says. The apostle Paul doesn't lay down a dare, but the apostle Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. If he doesn't need our money... Why the the dare to give and why the encouragement to be cheerful in it? It's because God knows how easily money can get in between us and him. And when you and I commit to this regular, intentional, planned out, systematic giving away of our stuff, every time we do that, we give our quote-unquote tithe, what we're saying is, God, I'm not trusting in money. I'm trusting in you. 
God, there are things more valuable to me than money. I'm giving it away. God, I'm not finding my security, my self-sufficiency in a pile of money. I'm finding it in you. You're going to keep your promise. You're going to keep your word. You're going to take care of your people. And I believe that. God put this principle in place in the old covenant and in the new so that there's something we regularly commit to that reminds us we don't hope in money. We don't look for satisfaction in money. We look to God. We hope in God. That's the ultimate end game of this series, this morning and each and every week. We're not talking about these sins so that you leave and go to lunch each Sunday and say, man, I feel rotten. I'm bad. I'm a bad person. I do bad things. We're looking at these sins. We're coming to the scriptures as a mirror, and we're looking in the scripture as a mirror, and we're saying, God, tell me what I'm like. Show me who I am. I don't want to be deceived about this. I don't want to lie to myself. I want to know the truth about who I am. And ultimately, it's so that we know the truth about who God is. And that none of these dispositions of our heart, greed included, come in between us in a relationship with God.